0: You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival.
1: And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's, yes, actually someone who wrote in And wanted to tell his own story on the podcast. We always love those guests who raise their hand and say, hey, I want to be part of the show. So this is going to be a very exciting episode. Just a couple of quick notes. As always, don't forget to follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast. Of course. Make sure you are leaving your Apple reviews. These things are so critical, guys. I don't know why Apple does their algorithm the way they do, but this is what they do. And the more reviews we get, the more stars that we get, the more popular this show is to the Apple community. So we want to crack the top 100 Apple podcast, but we need your help to do it. So please leave a rating and a review anywhere you get your Apple podcast and you can help grow the show. Speaking of growing, we'd love to be able to make some more donations, and we can do that with you through our partnership with Amazon. You go to our website, hazardground.com, you can click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab, and it'll direct you right to Amazon. You do all of your normal Amazon shopping, we get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we donate a percentage of that back to some of the great charities you've heard featured here on the show. And so with the holidays coming up, please put that in the back of your mind, That If you're going to go to Amazon, do some early Christmas shopping, early holiday shopping, whatever it may be, make sure you go to HazardGround.com first. On to this week's guest, who is a former Army Captain and an Army Ranger who served in the 75th Ranger Regiment. He was a ground force commander who served four total deployments, two to Iraq, two to Afghanistan. He was awarded a Purple Heart, two Bronze Stars, and a Medal for Valor. He's also a former Pat Tillman military scholar and the author of the acclaimed novel, uh, and the whole mountain burned, and his own memoir, We March at Midnight. He is Ray McPadden joining us on the Hazard Ground podcast. Ray, welcome, man, and thank you for joining us. Yeah, great, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, certainly appreciate it. So, We March at Midnight, you know, the memoir about war, leadership, and family, uh, just an incredible, incredible book. We certainly are uh, well familiar with it, and congratulations on all the success on, on all the books and all the, the authoring that you have done over the past couple of years. Yeah, thanks.
0: Thanks, Mark. It's, it's been fun to, to get the stories out there and, um, you know, have, have good feedback on them. So thank you.
1: Well, and I'm always curious, you know, uh, for people who raise their hand, because we're always looking for guest suggestions, right? We love it when listeners, uh, you know, email us and turn around and say, hey, we'd like to hear this story. We'd like to hear that story. But I'm always curious as to what prompted you to want to tell your story? Cause you reached out to us with an email. And again, we love it. I mean, it's great. We, we, we encourage a lot of listeners and people who have, whatever their story is uh, to come and tell it on the show. So what, what was kind of your impetus?
0: Well, I, you know, I listened to the show. Uh, you know, I, I listen to podcasts driving, driving back and forth to work. Uh, I work in Yellowstone. It's kind of a long, like dark commute. And, yeah, you guys, you guys keep me company. So I was like, hey, I, you know, like, I, I'd love to be part of this. So that that's, uh, that's the impetus behind it. So
1: excellent. Well, again, thank you for, uh, for raising your hand. And, uh, you know, some people don't have the courage to tell their story, because they don't think it's big enough, or it's important enough. But as we always say, you know, every story that we tell has its own level of importance. Uh, it does not matter whether you are a private or you are a three star general. Uh, we treat them all the same. So we're glad you stepped up to tell yours. But start at the beginning of your story and how and why you got in the army.
0: I got in, uh, you know, really September 11th. I mean, it was, it was easy for me, Mark. Saw the towers come down. I was, you know, I was like 18, 19 at the time. Oh, really? And, and that was, that was like, that's it. I I know what I'm going to do.
1: Were you in high school Uh, or do you remember exactly where you were? Freshman
0: in college. Yeah. So it was just, just had just started college. (laughs) Um, I, I knew I wanted to be military. My, my dad was a career Naval officer. So, like I always kind of had this idea that I was that I was going to go into the military, but like who and where, you know, like what exactly what branch and what I wanted to do, like all that was pretty, pretty fuzzy. And I was still trying to figure it out. And, you know, obviously, September 11 changed it where it was like, you know, revenge was on my mind. I wanted to go fight. I wanted to, to kill bad guys. So uh, that that that, you know, I, I got on that trajectory, you know, basically right after 9-11.
1: Did, uh, were you doing ROTC at the time or anything? Or did you just quit college altogether?
0: You know, so, so I actually stayed in and because my, my inclination, right, was like, I'm going to go enlist because, uh, you know, the, 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 there's, there's going to be an invasion. There's going to be a war. I don't know what's going to happen exactly, but I want in on this and, and I don't want to like, I don't want to miss out. And it was, um, you know, I was talking to the ROTC program and and uh, you know I was in the in the corps of cadets there too, but again not necessarily on the on the sort of contract army route yet. And it was the old ranger battalion NCO uh, guy. He was in he was in second bat too, and he told me, you know, like don't 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 go enlist. Like hold on, hold hold your horses there. Uh, you know, y- y- trust me, you want to finish school. And he he had some some wisdom in in saying this fight's gonna, it's not going to be over anytime soon. This, this is going to go on for a long time. And he'd been in, he'd been in combat. He'd been in Panama. He, he'd done some other kind of secrets, girl things. And uh, so I, I thought really highly of him. And I, I, I took that advice and thought and, and, and decided to go ahead and like, get, you know, get on the ROTC route and, and uh, get commissioned and, and kind of wait. So it was, it was hard to do. Mark, it was hard to kind of like make that leap of faith of the war is not going anywhere. Uh, But ultimately, obviously, he was, you know, he was right. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm glad I stayed on that track.
1: Yeah. Uh, Little did we know uh, 20 years later that we we would have still been doing this. We all thought the war was going to pass us by and uh, a generation passed by and we were still doing it. So uh, crazy to think Uh, I was actually commissioned at the time already and I had just gotten off active duty when nine eleven happened. So it was kind of a full full on neutral drop and, and heading in the other direction for me. Um, so when do you actually end up commissioning? What year?
0: It was, it was basically like Christmas 2004. Okay. So I went, yeah, like I got my commission, I think like new year's day, 2005. Gotcha. And then, and then started the infantry officer basic course, you know, within, you know, basically within a, like a week or two of graduating from, uh, from A and M, I graduated like kind of Christmas time frame, and then went right to Fort Benning. I mean, it was yeah, it was all kind of lined up pretty fast. Okay, so
1: you knew doing ROTC that you were going infantry the whole way.
0: Yeah, you had to right, you had to compete for it. Yeah, um, it's, it's at least on the officer, you know, for the officer side. It's funny, right? Because like it was, you know, it used to be like Vietnam. You know, it was like oh gosh, like the infantry was for the, the all the people that you know, didn't, didn't do well on their ass right. or well, whatever. The idiots.
1: because well, I, yeah, like, yeah, I went through ROTC. We had to compete for it as well, but you had to compete not to get infantry. Otherwise yeah. you were going infantry and that was three nine 11. So if you were stupid, you were going infantry. If you were halfway smart, you got something else.
0: Right. Yeah. And, but, you know, I think in the modern, kind of in the modern era, at least for me, like infantry was, was the, that was the most competitive you know, thing. And, and, you know, so I, I, you know, I tried very hard in college. I did a lot of um, like extracurricular things. I went to some army schools, graduated from some army schools, did really well academically. And so, you know, I got, I got infantry. And then the other thing was you got to pick your, you know, you, you got to like pick your unit. I say that air quotes pick. So you got, you know, I, I don't know if you remember this Mark, but you, you would do, Okay, here's here's my list. You're OML, kind of goes, your order of
1: merit list of the 10 Yeah, you Yeah, earn. exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so, I, uh, I, my first five were in Germany. Six was in Italy. Seven was Hawaii. Uh, and I ended up at Fort Hood, Texas.
0: <laughs> exactly. So I, think everybody's, list. I think everybody's order of merit list is the same, yep. right? It's everybody like picks the exotic locations yep. first. And my, I remember my number one was um, Vicenza, Italy. Like I wanted to go to yep. 173rd because I was like, ah, oh, Italy, cool, and airborne, and and i I don't remember where you know like tenth mountain was it was in the top five, but it wasn't you know certainly wasn 't the top one so I, I got assigned to tenth mountain but i i was I was cool with that because i i I knew like kind of the old school like ski and mountaineering history of Tenth mountain and i'd been a climbing ranger for the National Park Service like a seasonal gig and uh I'd been to mountaineering school uh the army sent me to mountaineering school uh, so I, I you know I was like yeah this is uh this is cool. I'm excited. And, and uh, I, so I, I'm, I'm glad it, it worked out. And, and 10th Mountain was a, a good fit for me.
1: Yeah, I remember there there were certain posts they said, don't put it on there or you'll automatically get it. And Fort Drum was one of them because nobody wants to go live in 10 feet of snow eight months out of the year. So um, I avoided that like the plague, thankfully. Instead, I got, you know, dry, hot rock desert in central Texas. So, uh, you know. Uh, Live and let live, I suppose. Um, by the way, when, when you were in college and Iraq had kicked off, did that fear of missing the war sort of go away immediately because now you had two wars? Yeah, I think so.
0: I um like for me, I always wanted to go to Afghanistan. I was like, Iraq, I don't I, I could care less about Iraq. You know, to me it was like it, there was that immediate and very clear link between 9-11 and Afghanistan and Al Qaeda and and that's where i wanted to be i mean 100 percent. and in iraq was just sort of this thing in the background and what was interesting is like it, as as iraq really got going i mean it kind of sucked all the air out of the room and like that's nice. where that's what all everybody was talking about And afghanistan sort of went into the kind of into the background for a while but for me i was it was always very clear that i wanted to go to afghanistan and so when i mark when i got to drum uh i actually had orders to go to a unit that was coming back from Iraq. And that was unacceptable for me. I was like, I mean, you talk about like being a young, like second Lieutenant and you you don't want to go to a unit that just come back from, from combat, you know, you can be completely irrelevant. And
1: so you're already irrelevant as a second Lieutenant. Now it makes you more irrelevant. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. It's already hard, hard enough to be like a cherry leader. Um, And so so I, I you know I basically went to division to to the s one you know it was a colonel, and uh you know i said hey i I'm, I'm supposed to be in afghanistan and i I, I want on the next thing I, I went on the next thing going on over there, and she uh you know she thought i think you know kind of her body language and her, her initial reaction coming in was she was, she thought I had showed up to try to get out of the deployment because the wars had been going for a little bit. And <laughs> I think people were starting to, you know, kind of look for, for cush jobs and and such. And so I, uh, I, I think I surprised her by, you know, going in there and, and, and basically begging, you know, grabbing her leg and begging to, to go to Afghanistan. And, uh, but she cut, you know, she gave me orders right there and, oh, and, and, wow. Yeah, she was like, Here, you know, go away.
1: Go <laughs> to Afghanistan, just out of my office. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just
0: leave me alone. And so that's I got assigned to uh a infantry battalion, one three two infantry, uh that was that was uh you know basically in the final phase of their train up to to go to uh Afghanistan. So I got exactly what I wanted, Mark. Did you get a platoon right away? No, I didn't. Okay. I had to wait And so the way, the way it works for like units that are kind of gearing up or at least, you know, at the time was they would, they would plus you up with like a lot of extra bodies. And it's, you know, it's, it's, um, I didn't know it at the time. Right. But it's like, they're just getting like the unit ready for casualties where there's, there's people in the unit who can fill in immediately. So I went in, I was kind of, I was kind of extra for a while. Uh, and did, but I didn't, I didn't have to wait long, you know, it was, yeah, it was like, you know, I, I kind of, uh, did, did some things, uh, kind of some staff work. I did, I did some other things and got to, got to know the battalion commander pretty well. So learned, learned a lot from him and then, yeah. And then, you know, basically within, you know, just a week or two of deploying, I was actually put into a platoon. Gotcha. Okay.
1: Um, so what year month is this when you first leave for afghanistan we got there in february 2006 okay all right yeah
0: um yeah. Pretty slow
1: time over there in february A slow time yeah
0: yeah yeah right it was so here's like here's the other thing going on like in in the army at the time right was it was like everybody was like, hey, the war, like, if you want to get in the shit, you go to Iraq. Yeah. Like, Iraq <laughs> was like was really, really, yeah, it was really was messy. You had Fallujah, Ramadi, mm-hmm. like, all those big stories were yep. coming out. And, you know, Iraq was kind of where you went to, to like really, you know, get, get the fight, get in a fight. Um, and in Afghanistan, right, you had the initial window, the invasion, right, where it was like, man, you know, that invasion. I mean, it's so, like, romantic and sexy, the, the the initial invasion of Afghanistan. But then everything, you know, everything quieted down. And then it was like, you know, Afghanistan, you go over there, you get some cool hiking in, you take some cool pictures, but it wasn't really seen as, like, the hot war. Uh, and – but what happened is – you know, right? Like Al Qaeda and, and the Taliban, they kind of went to ground and, and a lot of them went over to Pakistan for a while. And what happened is, like, right in 2006 was when they ramped up in a huge way. And so Afghanistan was kind of chill. Our troop levels had really kind of come, come down considerably. Yeah, I
1: think there were about 15, under 20,000 at that point in time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's when that's when the war, I think, you know, in terms of like the Taliban really being extremely aggressive, kind of re, reconstituting themselves and like actually launching offensives, uh, really started in 2006. So right. what was interesting thing about that for me, Mark, was like we were, um, in in many cases, like we were actually outnumbered. We were outnumbered, wow. like you know, numerically we were like under, you know, we we're pretty under strength. And it took the army a while to kind of recognize that, like, what the what the Taliban was was doing, and so we're in that weird period where the war took off again, but we didn't really have the people, right, uh, to, to sort of like to, to to you know fight back. I, I think to it, the way we we really needed to. So it was a, you know, that that obviously factored into my first tour, right. So
1: well, and again for for a frame of reference for you know, civilians listening just think about this, you know, if they're under 20,000 in Afghanistan at the time, when everything went down at the Afghanistan airport, we'd send 5,000 people in just to secure an airport, right? I mean, we sent 5,000 troops back in to secure an airport. So uh, a force four times the size of that or less than four times the size was there to secure an entire country at the time. That's how small, um, you know, we had drawn down from Afghanistan at that point in time. So stands to reason, obviously, why why Al Qaeda and the Taliban were able to sort of reconstitute and and set themselves back up so when you get there where are you in afghanistan and what is your mission so we go to Kunar province okay
0: and we go into the Korangal valley we are the first unit to establish a permanent presence in the Korangal wow. valley so just like bookends with some other things that are pretty well known mark like operation red wings yep. right um marcus luttrell yep. the lone survivor that's that's right there in that valley yep. right on kind of the high ground and that was that event precipitated, you know, it was like, Hey, the, the, there's this gigantic enemy presence here. We have to, to, to be aggressive in combating them. So uh, part of what happened afterwards, we essentially went in and established the first, the first outpost. Uh, we said, we're going to go into these, this, their terrain, we're going to go into their backyard. We're going to own it. And we're going to kick their ass. And that's, so that was the, you know, that, that was the basic mission. Uh, we were we were the first ones to go in there and and try to actually like live and establish uh, you know a presence and
1: how much um, we were you meeting were, with it, the
0: locals? You know, at first, like we we were doing we were doing like coin like you know hearts and minds like let's build relationships right. It's basic sure. doctrine. It's like okay, right. you know, establish relationships, like get to know people, uh, separate the enemy from the population, sure. and we we learned pretty quickly that the enemy was the population. The entire every I, I shit you not, like everybody in the valley was like, We don't want you here. And yeah. somewhere, you know, there was Al Qaeda, there was Taliban, and there's also a lot of just like the Korangalis themselves are, you know, like the the ultimate like gangsters. You know, like they are just like, hey, we're they're badasses and they don't they don't want anybody in their backyard really. Like, you know, Westerners, the infidel types, like they're just Um, a very you know kind of isolated like mountain people and so you know we we quickly found that we were you know not just fighting al-qaeda who was kind of the primary like targets and some of the higher level taliban commanders who had sought haven in the area we were fighting the entire population everybody so it was like within like two or three weeks we kind of realized like it was just i was gonna say how quickly
1: did the operational tempo pick up and the enemy contact pick up
0: it was, it, you know, it took, a, it was kind of like, this was all in the span of like just a few weeks, right? right? So we went in and we did this big operation and and we pushed a lot of the, and like this this is like guerrilla warfare, like one-on-one, right? So they they saw we had this big sort of presence. We'd made this big offensive into the valley, gotten some fights, you know, but but largely they saw how strong we were and they fled. And then as we started to draw down and we went, went to our permanent presence, which is basically a company, a company's going to own this valley. It's about, you know, 10, you know, nine, 10 miles long, give or take Uh fairly large land area. And we're going to, we're going to control that with a company of infantry uh, from, from the army. Uh, they, they all started to, to, to re-infiltrate the Valley, all the kind of the foreign fighters, uh the other big sort of like Taliban affiliates uh, that, that were, uh, you know, part of the, the bigger, you know, campaign in, in Kunar, they all came back in. So within like, within about three weeks of us kind of going, Hey, it's just us here now. It, it got, um, it got really nasty. And the fights were um, it, you know, at first it was like, it was a lot of frequent contact. It was like three or four times a day. Like we were in, we were in like shootouts uh, and they weren't, they weren't huge yet. They weren't huge. We were taking casualties. We had KIAs, we had WIAs, but they weren't like huge quite yet, but they were just really, it was just constant fire.
1: For somebody who uh, wanted to prove themselves and want to go to war and get bad guys, when one of your first guys gets killed or wounded for that matter, do you look at that decision a little bit differently?
0: Yeah, you you certainly do. And so we were right. We're learning. Um, There hadn't really been any like we're we're off the map in in many ways. and, And we're 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 in very much like uncharted territory. And so we're, we're like learning too, you know, where you don't have, um, you know, a lot of experience in this type of terrain, you don't truly know like the enemy strength. And so, you know, you're, you're kind of like feeling your way through it. And yeah, we started to have, you know, we had some KIAs early on and that, you know, obviously, you know, wakes, wakes you up. And, and I certainly, um, you know, tactically you start to, you know, take, take it much, much more seriously. Mm -hmm. And I think probably the biggest adjustment we made early on was, was, was trying to do more like night operations. Like we, we thought we could move around the Valley and, 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 and kind of find like in the, in the daylight. And what we found was just because of the terrain, you have this extreme terrain, like, you know, um, 11, 12, 13,000 foot peaks all around you. Um, you have cliffs, you have, you just raging like mountain streams. And you also had, you know, very like barren kind of uh, hillsides down low where it was really easy to, to kind of spot people moving around. They, our patrols were easily spotted. And then up high, you had really thick forests, like big, huge old growth forests, conifers, pines, so just this wild landscape and this vertical battlefield and anyway so so point being you um it was it was hard to move around undetected and so because of the severity of the terrain too like it was pretty easy you were it, moving was like really slow going so you would often find yourself in a position where um you know the enemy could like maneuver on you fairly fairly quickly and then you know, you're, you're moving very slowly and they catch you like they catch you on the side of a hill Mm -hmm. and they've got, they line up one machine gun on you and they, they, they can just, I mean, they can, you know, they could literally take out everybody, you know, it's just very, very taxing to try to move there. And it's very easy for, for the enemy to, to maneuver on you.
1: Did you get a sense that you might've been overmatched from that standpoint with the terrain being the biggest challenge?
0: We learned, yeah, we, it was, it was challenging. Like we were, I thought we were really fit. Like we were, we knew where we were going more or less and we trained up for it. And, you know, we did a lot of things like in the mountains and Mm -hmm. we had a lot of young, you know, obviously young, really fit guys, but those first few movements over there, I mean, it was, it was, it was really messy. It was really (laughs) messy. And Um, it, yeah, we had a lot of terrain injuries, casualties from terrain, you know, guys, guys falling off of cliffs, um, you know, just, or, you know, uh, yeah, just, just, you know, uh, we had guys drown in, in the rivers. I mean, we're moving, we're literally moving with ropes. Like we're doing rope bridges. We're doing kind of, um, you know, so it was like low, low grade, like kind of climbing. I mean, it, it is, it was, it is intense. So we, we definitely lost people from just the the terrain alone. And it took us about, you know, it took us probably a solid month to like really get our legs under us. And, and then once we did, like we were, you know, we were, um, you know, incredibly fit we were incredibly fit, mm-hmm. you know, where it was like the, the, the shit we were capable, like that we could do like even in the dark, was was amazing i mean obviously the it's the best shape i've ever been in and like my my like my first platoon like the fitness level like we break we could go we'll take a delta like we could take delta out we'd break them the fuck off we'd break them off like i take my ranger platoon out we would have broke them off and it was it was uh i mean so it was it was it was cool like kind of how fit and how good we got at moving in that terrain mm-hmm. but it it, it came with a cost to get there. Right. You, we, we lost people just from, from the terrain alone,
1: by the way, did you, did you get Ranger tab before you deployed? Oh yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, but you, that means that's a lot of quick schooling from the time you graduated to the time you deployed.
0: It was, yeah, it was all, I mean, it was just like, boom, bam, boom, bam, boom, bam, boom. Bam. boom. Yeah. I mean, okay. All right. And you glossed
1: over that before. Uh, was yeah. just, I didn't know if it had happened before or after. And then you said Ranger platoon. Okay. I mean, I, I guess it makes sense. Um, but nonetheless, uh, you know, again, you finish IOBC and right off to Fort Benning for ranger school, right?
0: Yeah, correct. Yeah. It was uh, like, I lined them all up. I mean, it was like, I would have like a break, like a, like, I think between like IOBC and ranger school, I maybe had like a week or two and they just like make you go out and like rake leaves and shit, like <laughs> between, you know, like, Oh, we don't know what to do. Like so do tennis, just, you know, go rake leaves out of Fort Pretty Benning, much, yeah. And then, um, and then yeah, ranger school and then ranger school into airborne school and then air assault school. Oh wow. And then so you spent the first yeah, year
1: of your military career in school.
0: Yeah, yeah, just constant schooling and I mean all excellent training. And I and the other kind of two things I did that were that were you know, I thought were super cool. Like we did this once I got to drum, because that was like again, it was like just kind of the train up right that we were doing was we went to like a tracking school. We learned how to track people, right? Like how to follow a sign, like Mm -hmm. footprints. Um, And then we went to a a horse packing and and like mule packing course. We learned how to work with horses, mules, donkeys, like how to to stick supplies on them because we knew like we were, you know, logistically going to have a lot of challenges. And so we were trying to get ready for like this, like a a completely like archaic way of fighting, right? Where it's like it's all on foot, We're using like donkeys, mules, like you can't depend on helicopters and you sure as shit aren't gonna be able to drive anywhere. So that's, uh, you know, like we, again, we knew what we were getting into and we trained for it as best we could, but there was just kind of nothing that could quite replicate the conditions uh, of, of the Hindukush range uh, for, for us. So it was, uh, there was a a huge learning curve, Mark.
1: That first deployment, um, 15 months, right?
0: Yeah. 15. Yeah. Uh, closer to, closer to one, six, closer to 16 for, I think for, for most of us, especially Welcome kind of on the, the army you side. <laughs> yeah. You, you kind of go over there um, and there was kind of some front end and some back end stuff. So about 16 months and it was, so it was originally 12, right? Right. And that was, uh, and then we kind of, toward the tail end we got, we got extended. So it ended up being 16 months and that was, that was 16 months like out of a rucksack, out of a rucksack, like that was not, you know, we were not in like the bigger bases, you know. But that's what you signed up
1: for, man. You <laughs> <edit>
0: that, <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah, it was. It was like, this is, and this is like, and, you know, we, we kind of talked about this a little bit and, and I, I, there's kind of a lot to unpack around it, but it was like for, for me and I think for a lot of the guys that were with me, it was like, this is what war is supposed to be. This is what it's supposed to look like. Right. Well, it's it's not supposed to look like right. Yeah, it's not supposed to look like driving around a fucking Humvee getting blown up in Iraq by a bomb. It's like this is a real shooting war on foot, like squad on squad, platoon on platoon with the enemy. And it was yeah, there so it was like this very like stripped down like mode of fighting. And it was like you could not have asked for a better situation in terms of like what I wanted. I mean, it it really was like ranger school, like that's it was like ranger school patrols, like especially the mountain phase of ranger school. I mean, that's that's what it was, front front to you know, like from beginning to end.
1: Good old Dahlonega, Georgia. Um, (laughs) So after you get back from that deployment, um, what's next for you? How quickly do you go on to another one? I
0: went to. So I went to the ranger, like basically it's called rope, and it's um, it's for the officers, right? To to get into the ranger regiment, it's uh, it's about three three weeks and some change. And I went within two, well, yeah, maybe two or three weeks of getting back from that tour, I went to rope. Okay, um, and that was yeah, again, that was that was the program for like if,
1: the choice you made or the army told you you were doing that.
0: Well, I, I wanted to go to the Ranger Regiment. Right. That was like all that was a goal from the beginning, right? And so for officers, you can't like opt like so if you're enlisted, mm-hmm. you can you can opt for the the Ranger Regiment, right? right. Like there's a there's sort of a pathway for that. Mm-hmm. But for officers, you have to go to the line, you like conventional army first. There's no route like straight into like JSOC for for mm-hmm. officers. Yeah. So you had to go to the line first. And you had to get your tab too. like you had to you had to be ranger qualified, which the enlisted guys go in and then they, they usually go to ranger school later. Um, but you had to go to ranger school on the front end. So I had um, ranger school under me. I had a conventional army like platoon later time under me. So those are the two basic prerequisites. And essentially what was happening because of the war is like it became a, a, a prerequisite that you had been downrange, that you had been in combat. Like, you were just not going to be competitive for the Ranger oh, Regiment. Time, if you, I mean, by oh six oh yeah.
1: seven, whatever it is, when you, when you officially get back, you know, I mean, you had two wars raging on for six years now. There was no reason. At that point, everybody, 75% of the Army had a, had a combat patch on.
0: Exactly, yeah. So, if, if you didn't have a CI, a combat infantry badge, right. you, weren't, you weren't competitive for the Ranger Regiment. So, like, everybody... Like in my course, in my like class for rope, right, this kind of their selection program, all like everybody had been downrange. Everybody had a CIB. Everybody had plenty of firefight stories. So that's kind of your baseline. Uh, But I go into essentially rope like within, yeah, I think about three weeks of getting back from Afghanistan. I'm still like pretty tore up, Mark. Like we literally were, I mean, it was, it was such an intense deployment, 16 months out of a rucksack, like humping, fighting in those mountains, heavy casualties. You know, I was, I was like, basically like we were all like starving to death, you know, like we had a hard time getting like food. We had a hard time getting water, you know, we're like out there scrounging food. And, um, you know, so like, we were like, we were very like broken down. And I just remember being like, not even sure that I could like pass a PT test. <laughs> you know, and, and it's like, like you had to do, you know, like five mile run and like, rucks and like all these things. You know, there's all these fairly intense, like physical things you had to do it, at the beginning of rope. And I, I remember being like a little bit nervous about that because, like, fitness wise, I went, you know, you kind of start off, you're pretty fit, and then you go to this insane fitness level in, in you know, in Afghanistan. But then as the tour goes on, you start to become like diminished. Like it starts to like your body's breaking down, like your muscles breaking down and you get, you know, you didn't you have ice of, cream
1: in your chow hall. That's why. You, oh,
0: yeah. It was. Yeah. So it was again. It was like, everybody on the cushy bases
1: are, in Iraq got fatter because there was ice cream and cookies in the chow hall.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. So it was, you know, we were like I came home and I was like I, mean, I was like I was totally beat down. I remember being worried about passing, um, like just kind of like basic, like physical events. Uh, but, but I, you know, I managed, I managed to, to, to get through everything fine. It was just, it was more, you know, challenging than it should have been for me. I was the type of guy that was usually just like blowing PT tests out of the water. Right. And then, um, uh, you know, so I, and it was kind of a long answer to your question, Mark, but we, we ended up, um, so I finished rope, right. I finish and they're like, okay, you, you got into Ranger Regiment, you're going to 2nd Battalion. And then I get to 2nd Battalion, right. Like we, again, I, I go to drum, like pack up my shit and like me and Elizabeth, my wife and I, like we we fly across the country, like in my truck, drive across the country, drive to Fort Lewis. I get to Fort Lewis, kind like a report. I'm like, hey, what's up? You know, and they're like, well, you're you know everybody's downrange. Uh, they 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 left a little while. You know, they just kind of left a little, little while back. Um, and they were like, you want to go? And or you want to you know stay here and be like a little staff bitch? And I was like, no, I'm I'm in. Like send me over there. So
1: it I'm was sure your wife was I mean, with that answer.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So within like two, I think within two months of getting back from Afghanistan for a 16 month tour, within two months, I was, I was in Iraq. (laughs) So yeah, it was, man, I I tell you what, it was, it was, it was really bizarre. You know, it was, um, it was, and just the juxtaposition of like Iraq and the Rangers and like Afghanistan and like 10th mountain. I mean that, that like military juxtaposition was really interesting, but to me, like what was really weird and strange was being home. um, Like that little bit of time home after, after a war and then like knowing I was going back to another one, like mentally I was, I was in a really strange place, you know, where you, you like, I never really turned off and mentally like coming off a of deployment like you you know you're kind of like okay you're, you're trying to tell yourself psychologically mentally like shut down like let it kind of let it go like let it go but knowing i was going back over too you're like okay i can't like i can't totally like wind down like i have to stay in this mode so you know in effect like the the war never stopped you know, it was it was just kind of home for a little while. And I think for my wife at the time, it was, you know, it was pretty rough to, like, deal with me, you know, who I can imagine. Yeah. Who's who's still very much on patrol, who's still kind of on a mission, who's just got like you got one foot back home. But you're really like you're a ghost. You're a ghost. Like yeah. you're not you're not really there. So, yeah, anyway, but, but yeah, Iraq, Iraq was the next one, Mark.
1: Um, where in Iraq are you?
0: To crit at first. Okay. Up north. To crit. Yeah. So kind of Sunni triangle, like that whole hot area. That was the, um, that was, that was the first trip.
1: What were, you, um, what were you guys charged with there?
0: It was, it was basically counterterrorism. I think our, our, um, our, our targets, like, so we were doing raids, right? Classic like ranger regiment missions. The, the ranger regiment had really transformed themselves into like from this big kind of like invasion force, Uh, into like a, like a raiding force, um, Mm -hmm. like a kind of a night raiding force. And we were, so we were going out basically every night and hitting, hitting targets. Uh, We were doing most of it by, by vehicles. Occasionally we, we, we do helicopters, but the nature of Iraq was, you know, you could, you could kind of drive just as well as you could fly. So we were rolling out uh, night raids and our targets were, you know, mainly Kind of Al Qaeda affiliate and Al Qaeda like members. Um, There was there were some suicide bomber cells that that we went after. A lot of very like high value kind of like enemy enemy leaders. Sort of your your kind of tier one type targets. Yeah. So it was a it was totally totally different game though. Where the you know the it was it was night raids, fairly short raids. Right. You go out for like a few hours. But the the other thing like going on in Iraq at the time was like it the really the like the war had you know again it, it kind of like there was these ebbs and flows in the war and it was at it was at one of those high points where it was it was really Iraq was really nasty at the time oh, yeah. and everybody was fighting everybody like the sunnis and like the whole sunni and like al qaeda insurgency that was there I mean they were just going crazy but then the shia too like there was jay Shalmadi and uh, solder and like the, the that whole group was like making a big mess at the time and everybody was just shooting at everybody and it was a it was a it was a total free-for-all like where you could go out and you could literally you might hit like four or five targets in a night and you might kill like a dozen bad guys in one night and like nobody would even blink like you know where it's like i remember afghanistan like my my second tour like you know like you went out and like did a raid and you like killed somebody and like the whole, the next day, the whole province was talking about it. Like you were hearing from the government about it. You were hearing from the, their, you know, politicals about it. I mean, it was like, it was big news, but you could go out. There was a point in Iraq where you could go out and kill a dozen people in one night and like nobody blinked. It was just, uh, it was just the, the war was at such this, this like height at the time. So that's, I, I caught that and, Um,
1: 2007, that was, that's when that was. That's, uh, yeah, I mean, that was craziest time in Iraq, uh, to say the least. Hence when the surge came in because the violence was at its apex. So you guys had to deal with that, um, level of casualties you sustained on the second deployment, anywhere near the first.
0: No, no, the, I I think the, the battalion took some casualties, Uh, it was, it was all, it was mainly like house clearing where guys were getting shot, you know, where you were taking out. Um, you know, it was kind of like those Al Qaeda targets were like, those dudes were like fight and die in place. Like they would, they would throw down. Um, so we, we lost guys like clearing houses and stuff. And then they were doing, they started to do, um, the house born like IEDs where they'd like rig up a whole house and they, they, some of the smarter groups kind of knew that, you know, JSOC and, you know, the kind of the commando types were like after them. So they started like baiting us, you know, where they, they kind of knew how we were targeting them, like some of the technological things we could do. So they were set in big traps and they'd rig up like whole houses to blow. So we had some casualties in the battalion, but my the, 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 the guys I was with, nothing,
1: <laughs> nothing, was, no, no casualties. What was the biggest difference for you between going with the conventional unit and going in the Ranger Regiment? I mean, I understand that the, for lack of a better term, the, the combat itself is completely different. As you mentioned, one's in the mountains, the other one's in a city uh, for the most part. But other than that, sort of, uh, is there is there a noticeable difference between, for you, between the way you deployed with a Ranger Edge versus a conventional unit?
0: Well, the Rangers was easy. It was so freaking easy. Um, Honestly, I, it was like you had all the assets, you had good intel, mm-hmm. you had very, like, you know, kind of focused missions and you had a lot of, you know, extremely high performing people. So, you know, I, I, I would liken it to an F you know, with the 10th mountain division, like that that long tour, like I was, it was like, I was as the, as the, as a platoon leader, as like a, a commander in combat, I was driving, it was like, I was driving an old, like beat up pickup truck and you know, the transmission was going out and then the engine had already been replaced like three or four times. And, you know, you had your tire rods broke every time you stopped and you had flat tires every day. And, and that, that, that was it. And then in the Rangers, I got to drive a Ferrari, you know, (laughs) I was driving a Ferrari around. It was, it was, I mean, we was it was, you know, what we were capable of was amazing, but it was, it was, it was just, it was easier, you know, physically it was easier and then assets wise. Right. My, my experience when I, in Afghanistan with the conventional army was like, you know, you basically had to have like a mass casualty event to get an aircraft uh, to, to help you. And then we go out on targets with the Rangers. You'd have AC 130s and then higher in the stack. You'd have, you know, fast movers, maybe drones. Uh, you know, you'd you'd have, you know, awesome intel. I mean, you always had eyes in the sky. So you know, in the Rangers, you just felt like you had all the angles, man. You had just all. the Just goes to game. show you
1: what the Army prioritizes as important, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. It, was,
0: it was. It was. Yeah, it was nuts, man. I was like, this shit is easy.
1: Yeah, that's well, that's again, it. I mean,
0: and it's not. Best, and you know, right? I'm not like I'm not downplaying like the risk. Like some of the missions in the Rangers, I mean, they were they were hard, like pretty scary missions, like deep in enemy territory, like places where the conventionals, like it, we did this in Iraq around a bunch where like the conventionals We got to go, like nobody goes there. Like we just don't go to that area period because it's just too hot. And you know, we, 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 um, you know, you, you do you need a basically a brigade to pull that off and tanks and shit like that. And then we go do it. Like the Rangers would go have do it. And that's what you're supposed to do. Right. Like that's, that's kind of the nature of those like special units. These like raids deep in enemy territory. Like that, that that's your mission. Um, So I'm not, I'm not downplaying the fact that there were some truly like dangerous missions, but I think just like kind of day to day, you just, you felt like you were so much more supported than just the conventional infantry that would just get kind of thrown out there. And like, you're, you're on your own, man. Like, again, no air, you know, you didn't really have, you know, a lot of, a lot of backup. You didn't feel like you had a lot of help.
1: Were you, did you have more close calls on the first deployment or the second one? I mean, the first one to Afghanistan, the second one to Iraq.
0: Yeah, yeah, first one, for sure. Again, the the second one was hot. I mean, we were shooting, we were killing lots of people, but it was just like, you know, it was like, it was us shooting them first, right? Whereas Afghanistan was a lot of times it was like the enemy was initiating contact. And so, you know, I got wounded on the first tour. Um, We had 50% casualties and it wasn't because we were conventional infantry and like Rangers or Rangers. I think anybody- Go
1: ahead. How'd you get wounded?
0: Oh, a rocket-propelled grenade. Yeah, I got. Man, I just took an RPG in the face. Nice. <laughs> yeah, you it healed was. Well. Yeah, it was. It was a big firefight, um, and it hit. Um, there, I was. I was using this. I had this little skinny tree. I mean, literally the like the width of my thigh, right, for cover. And, uh, me and my, one of my team leaders, uh, were, were kind of using this tree for cover and we were shooting back and they let loose Our RPG took the tree, um, hit the tree dead on. Oh, wow. Um, again, thigh thigh size tree. I mean, this tiny little thing and the RPG just basically like destroyed the tree. And then we were, we were inside the fireball. Like when it, when it blew up, like we were inside it, you know, and that was, uh, you know, that was a that was an intense, intense experience, you know, and I was I I was I got, you know, shrapnel really bad. I got uh, my eardrum completely annihilated and then, you know, concussion, you know, kind of kind of bordering on T- TBI. Right. But I, I think, you know, I, cognitively, I'm, I'm pretty good today. So,
1: so it was, yeah, it was essentially rough. in a two and a half year span, you know, you've deployed twice um, when you get home from Iraq the first time. Uh, There's not much left. You didn't do all that much time on active duty, brother. So how quickly are you back in the saddle?
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, what the Rangers were doing at the time was you do.
1: Well, you're probably only doing seven, eight months, right?
0: Yeah, you're doing it. it was it was I think there were like four, like four to five month tours in the Rangers. So they were they're definitely shorter. Right. So I did three, three tours of the Rangers, you know, kind of the long one with Big Army and then three tours of the Rangers. And those the Ranger ones were like fairly short or comparatively short you know four or five months is you know it's kind of i mean that's that's long yeah. <laughs> you know in and of itself for a combat deployment um but and then you were doing you know you would do right like the way the rotations were working out you do about six months at home and then you know kind of four months downrange, six months at home four months downrange. So, you know, I was, yeah, I was active duty for like five years and I was deployed for, for two and a half of it, you know, so basically half the time, like not the, like deployed, like to combat, like fighting. Right. And then there's, you know, there's the training, you know, like the, all the kind of, um, train up and th- that sort of stuff too. So I don't, I don't know. Man. I I like slept left. I, I, I like barely, I <laughs> barely saw my wife and that's just, that's just the, 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 the kind of the phase that those two wars were in at the time.
1: Uh so how quickly is your next deployment and where? So the next one was
0: back to Iraq okay. and it was with uh with the Rangers, it was uh the back the the Baghdad area. And this one was, was really interesting. Where in this Baghdad why, just out of curiosity. Where? Yeah. Oh uh Baghdad Airfield was our main kind of staging base. Okay. Uh, and then we, we bounced around a bunch, but yeah, it was uh, Baghdad yeah, Airport. Yeah, okay. All
1: right. I yeah, was, so it was. I, I was yeah, over at RPC is, when I was there. Oh, oh, okay. Right. Yeah.
0: So, um, well, that's, yeah, I mean, in Biop, man, that, wow, what a crazy place. I mean, that's like a, I hadn't, I never, really, like, really ever seen something like that before. You know, yeah, it was know. like, there was a whole, like, little city, Biop. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. You know, and you could go and, it was like you know i mean there was like all the fast food and stuff but there was like like concerts all the time and like all this like you know it's like a little city over there our own like little american city for the military um but we were we were there and we were kind of like we were on our own like little secluded compound like we were like kind of the base within the base for you know kind of the jsoc compound and then um we, uh, we operated out of there, but then we, we, you know, we bounced around a lot, but the, what was, what was interesting about that tour for me was this was a new, um, special operations venture. So it was Rangers and SEALs in this big kind of strike force organized in this big strike force. And we were all like working together and actually hitting targets, um, like all together it was like one big strike element. So a very big, like strike force we were capable of you know, getting into some really, really nasty areas where it was like, you're not just going to fight the the guys on target. You might fight the whole neighborhood. Uh, <laughs> so we were kind of built for that, but it was Rangers and seals working together for the first time. And it was, you know, kind of our targets that were the agents of a foreign government. Some very, like, really kind of hush-hush stuff that I gotta I'll be careful about the kind of way, how much detail I go into, but, um, it, it, what was uh so, so the missions were were hairy you know because it was you know some of these areas where it's like you were gonna fight everybody like not right. just the yeah. guys on target but what we what was the hardest thing about it was just like the basics of like inner service rivalry and like seals and rangers like trying to get along with each other yeah that was the hardest thing. I was gonna
1: ask you next what, what that was like because uh <laughs> is, it, it becomes a big you know what measuring contest right Oh yeah. Yeah. That was, I mean, from the very get go, i like, I laugh like
0: our first, I remember when we, we met the seals, like first, first we had a big like pissing contest about like who had to go to whose base for kind of the first, like, okay, we're all going to kind of meet and and work together. And you know, there was this, this big row about who had to go to like whose base. Right. And and like, we, we actually won that. We, the Rangers won that one. They like, they came to our base. And I remember like the first meeting we had with them, um we all kind of get you know, we all get in this big room and it's like, oh, it's their brass and it's our brass and the the ground force commander, company, you know, the company commander, platoon leader types and their senior NCOs. We all get in this room and we're all introducing ourselves and everybody's doing everybody's like being so fucking hard about, you know, like their introduction and like standing up and like everybody's doing like the like the ultra deep voice, like I'm so badass thing and uh it was funny because yeah so that was like that was like i remember our first meeting with them and like everybody's like dropping names of like big ass operations and like things that they've done you know just to kind of be like yeah you know like oh you were oh you're in uh yeah you were Afghanistan like early on like oh were you in anaconda oh you weren't anaconda oh well yeah i don't even know what you were doing then like we were everybody's doing that. And like that started in the first meeting. And I don't think it ever really stopped, Mark. I mean, we kind of.
1: <laughs> so that's <laughs> when I, per- I come in and like cut the attention in the room. I'm like, I'd be something like, you know, Hey, I'm captain Dirk Diggler. I was in operation boogie nights. Uh, g- great to meet you all. Have a good day. You know, like it's just, <laughs> I, you know, that sort of stuff. always, I, I was like yawn, you know, I, I get it, but yeah, I don't get it. You know, I understand it, but I don't understand it. Yeah. yeah. No, but nobody was winning this war by themselves. No one unit won the war by themselves. And so it always, always made me a little bit more perplexed. And, and I learned that more than anything in this special ops community, that it was never just about one, one individual, one team, one, everybody had their, their part of the pie that, that made everything successful.
0: Yeah. Yeah, certainly. And I think that was, you know, a big job for me as like a, you know, on the officer side, right. It was like, we got to make, we got to make this work. Right? right. And we can't let this like, like ego shit and like, you know, well, you know, our kind of unit culture is better than your unit culture. Like we can't let that derail the mission, right? Like we gotta, you know, we we gotta be big kids about everything. And so um, it it was a success story. I think, you know, ultimately what we accomplished was we, like some of our operations actually like led to a ceasefire, like a bigger ceasefire with some of the huge militia groups. So wildly successful, um, but yeah, you know, yeah, just kind of kinda... night to night, it was, it was, it was pretty tough, man. Like, we'd fight over, like, I'm sorry, but this is like, Hey, I'm being real, man. Like, no, it's not like, Oh, everybody's like ultra professional, you know? Like, so we switch up, like who is assault and who is isolation, right? right. Like who's, mm-hmm. who's taking the building, like who's holding back the neighborhood. We'd like switch that up, you know? So the idea was like, we would just go 50, 50, like, um, but the, but the thing we had was like, okay, you had to. Like to, to for it to count as like an assault, like an assault night, as opposed to an isolation night. Mm-hmm. Um, it you had to hit, you know, you had to hit a house. Like you had to actually, uh. you know, get up in the house. So then we'd fight over like, oh well, well that doesn't. You know, we went last night, but that, but that was like that was kind of more of a shed, or like, oh well, we never. <laughs> it wasn't a house technically, you know. It like it's one floor;
1: like, it's not a house. Right. If you don't have to use stairs. It doesn't count as clearing it.
0: Yeah, yeah, or or you know some places it would be like it would be like super hot, and we were like, dude, we're gonna get a big ass fight like outside. Like the the target, he's some financier, like he's not gonna fight, but like the neighborhood's gonna fight. And so and then it was like, oh no, we're isolation like because like good dudes want to like throw down. Like that was like the the type of people we had. So right. it was uh you know it was it was yeah it was just kind of like some sometimes it just yeah you felt like we were like god damn it's like feels like we're like a bunch of high school kids yeah, in high school or
1: something pretty you know? much. Uh, but I was going to say, you, you started to hint at it in, in your answer there. You kind of get this this weird escalation where you start the conventional army, you go into the Rangers, and now you're working alongside SEALs. It's like you know, each time you're trying to outdo yourself almost.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. It's um, you know, you just kept like I felt like I just you know kept getting better. I mean, you were right. keep, I, I just kept found finding myself, and and not not by accident, like by design, like in in you know really at the at the tip of the spear and doing things that I thought could like really move the needle um and you know I I all you know I like I always struggled with the kind of bigger like geopolitical goals over there but I was always 100% convinced that like my unit and and whatever given particular mission I had at the time that we could we could move the needle that like we really could make a difference and it was like I mean, as simple as like, hey, OK, here's this terrorist cell. Let's kill all of them <laughs> or like capture. I mean, we'll kill we'll capture some of them, but we can really do that. Like we can get them all like we can wipe this whole thing out. Um, so, you know, I was always, you know, incredibly motivated, kind of on the technical side. while like, you know, like most soldiers, I think. The bigger strategic and the political objectives you're like, yeah, whatever i don 't care
1: <laughs> well I mean that's so. interesting you say that because I, my next question was simply, after this third deployment, uh, especially with the last two being to Iraq, you kind of had a sense of the lack of finality of the whole thing, like, yeah, we can keep doing this, but guess what we 're going to continue to keep doing this i mean it doesn't uh, it didn 't take a, a a diplomatic genius or a political genius to realize that both the Afghan and Iraqi armies respectively weren't built to last. Um, and so from that standpoint, uh, was there any part of you after that third deployment that, you know, was like, Hey, I'm I'm good. You know, I've done enough at this point.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah you're yeah, absolutely. Mark. Okay. I, I started to feel like y- you started to get a sense too, right? You, you do this, you know f- um, you know, I was four years into it and I was like, I don't see an end game necessarily. Like it doesn't feel like we're, it doesn't feel like we're progressing. And I think especially the people at the ground level could, you know, particularly in Iraq, like you kind of see it, or not in Iraq and Afghanistan, you were kind of seeing those like basic institutions, Iraq, um, the, the Afghan army, the Afghan police, you know, and, and just, you, you was like, oh yeah, this isn't, you know, this isn't really going well with these guys. But to me, what, what like, you know, very much moved me, in the direction of, you know, what are we doing? And are, are we really having an effect was I went back to Afghanistan for a fourth tour. Like my fourth tour is back in Afghanistan. And I actually went to the same villages and the same
1: valleys Yeah.
0: on that second now, how tour. How far
1: apart was that years wise?
0: About four, four-ish, okay. four ish, you know, four okay. years, give or take. Similar for years. me,
1: I went to Baghdad twice, five years apart. Oh
0: yes. Yeah, exactly. Right. So I mean you talk about like wisdom and like getting like kind of a measuring stick on things. Um and, and I saw I saw the same people. You I know, mean, not just the same areas, the same villages, you know, like oh I've driven on that road before. Like I know at the roundabout you go in at the in at the six out of the three, like that's yep. you know, but like I saw the same people, you know, the same like I was like, I remember that kid. You know, like I remember him and like, I remember this police chief and, you know, you're, you're running the same people who, who have basically been living in the war yeah. and uh, it gives you, yeah, it definitely gives you some perspective on things. Yeah. And for me, kind of the, you know, my initial impression going back to Afghanistan for my second tour in in Afghanistan, but fourth tour overall was that things hadn't really changed a whole lot. You in know, fact, like
1: they've gotten was, worse.
0: yeah. Yeah. And it was like, this is, Same. this is like yeah. tactically, strategically, this is a stalemate at best, Yep, you know? So that, that was my kind of impression going back there.
1: Yeah. Um, and, and you know, I never thought much about were losses worth it or anything when I went back there the second time. I mean, maybe it's just cause you, you, you're worried about your own sort of, you know, self-preservation instinct, but you know, w- with hindsight being 2020, um, He asked me if going back there the second time to the same exact spot, I would have chosen to go somewhere else because at least I wouldn't have felt like what I did the first time around completely gone, you know? Oh yeah. Uh, Yeah, man. I like like Mark, I don't want to get too negative here,
0: but like, so I saw projects that I had started like infrastructure projects Mm -hmm. as a, in my first tour as a, as a, as a platoon leader. And I saw those like, you know, I went back and saw those same projects and they had basically fallen apart. Like, so there was this very, there's extremely tangible, you know, um, metrics there about, you know, it was like, Oh my gosh, like they, why didn't like that whole road building thing, like it just totally went nowhere. And, uh, you know, so it is very, you know, a huge emotional impact to kind of see that where it's just like, you know, Afghanistan, like, you know, overall what we were trying to do, right. was, we are we're trying to, as a country and as a society, we're trying to speed them through like centuries of social mm-hmm. and, and technological change. And, and obviously it was just not, you know, it wasn't really, you know, some of the, some of our objectives, I think were a little bit too ambitious, <laughs> you know? So, so. Uh,
1: when you get back from your fourth deployment, um, do you know you're done? Like, Hey, I've done enough deployments. I'm good. Uh, yeah. It it
0: It, it Um, it had definitely like set in where kind of on the way home from that fourth tour. Uh, and he, and I, had, I, I had actually done a raid on a guy's house that had been a friend of mine from my first tour. Oh, wow. And I did a raid on his house as a ranger. And, uh, you know, we tore some shit up, we broke some stuff, we broke some people. And, uh, you know, that I, I I thought a lot about that and um, you know, this this guy who had been an ally, who had like sheltered us, who had like let us sleep in his home, and he'd been a somebody who was uh you know, helped us out a great deal on my first tour and then to kind of have him be a bad guy and to sort of be a target for my second, you know, tour four and a half years later. That was uh you know that that sort of put me into soul like soul searching mode. Mm-hmm. And and the other thing that was going on was, you know, again, I was I was married and I had my wife and and I could feel her, you know, I could feel her kind of like pulling away in some ways, you know, where it was just like, she, and, and I think everybody went through this. Who's, you know, who's, who had, was married, you know, and, and I, I'm especially, I think it's really interesting. Like the people who actually had kids, I didn't have kids at the time, but right. like, I could feel her kind of moving, moving away. And, uh, you know, just the kind of the strain of, of uh, repeated deployments and just never really being around was, uh, you know, it was a lot. And so, you know, that was, that was definitely on my mind as well. And so ultimately, you know, those, those two things kind of seeing, uh, you know, seeing Afghanistan and where, you know, where we, where we sort of made some progress, where we hadn't made progress, um, seeing a, a friend who had sort of turned into an enemy, and then feeling my, like my wife kind of pull away
1: from me, those, those things definitely factored into the the decision mark. Did uh, anybody in the army try to talk you out of it?
0: Yeah, it was heresy to, for like a ranger officer, oh, you really? know, somebody who'd who been in the regiment to say, Hey, you know, I think, I, I think I'm going to go maybe do some other things. That was, uh, you know, that was definitely frowned upon at, at the time, you know, and, and I had, I had some people too that, uh, and then this is not this is not everybody, like, so I don't want to misrepresent, misrepresent it. But some people were basically like, you know, they kind of turned their back on you. You're like, okay, you're not in the, you're not in the, you're not in the club anymore. Yeah, exactly. It's like blood in, blood out, man. You know, <laughs> you're like so that I mean that that hurt. And and there's, you know, honestly, Mark, there's even people today that you know kind of you sort of like reach out to, and and it's like, hey, man, we were down range together, and you know, we're, you know, we, we went through some shit and then you kind of, you know, they're, they're not really all that interested in talking to you. Um So that's, that's a, that's a strange experience, but, but on, on the whole, on the whole, I have a lot of like lifelong friendships and, and people that you're like, you know, you, you may not see them for four or five years, but then you just, you know, you just pick up right where you left off and you'll always be, you know, you know, closer than, than blood, you yeah, know? So, absolutely. Yeah.
1: So when do you get into writing?
0: It took me actually a long time. It took me like almost 10 years after yeah. I was done. And I think I'm, I think it's for the, for the better. And like, I I don't like, I think a lot of people, it, it is kind of a meta. It's a, or not a, it, it's sort of a, there's a therapeutic aspect to it. Right. It's kind of like the, the post-war guys who are, you know, you're kind of processing a lot of things and you're coping with a lot of things, you know, f- for me though, like I'm glad that I, uh, that I waited a long time. Cause I think, you know, having 10 years actually gave me a lot of wisdom sure. about what Absolutely. happened, you know, where you're like, you, you, ha- you could kind of find that like bigger meaning. Uh, I think if I would have tried to like start writing and like telling stories, like right after I gotten back, like right after I was done or like right after any given, like any one of those tours, there was a lot of raw emotion. There was a lot of like anger for me. There was a lot of anger and there was a lot of like blame too. Like anytime you have the guys get killed and, and, and some of that's like on me, it's my, you know, it's on me. Um, But you know, there's, there's, there's kind of a, there's like that there's poison in you and, and you're kind of, you know, you kind of throw that poison at other people too. And uh, so I, I think waiting gave, those memories and those experiences like time to mature for me. And, and ultimately, uh, I, I think, you know, kind of the storytelling and the writing was much better for it where, you know, it's not just, uh, kind of that initial, like raw, raw emotion
1: from it. Okay. So which one comes first, the memoir we march at midnight or, or the actual novel?
0: The novel was first. Okay. I've always always been like a bookworm. I'm like a total nerd. And, uh, (laughs) I used to write I like I used to like read when I was over there, like you know I actually had energy, I didn't have a whole lot of energy, but you know I'd read books all the time, I'd read like novels, I'd read nonfiction I never read like military stuff while I was over there, right uh, but you know it's just' it kind of saturation. It's kind of like the guys that you know that are like playing call of duty when they're like downrange and you're like, what are you doing um but it, but anyway so i I read a lot, I did the novel first. Because I, I just I kind of love like fiction, uh, mm-hmm. so that's that's kind of like where my heart was, and uh, that's 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 where I started.
1: All right, so uh, I'm always curious how you, authors write books because it's not something I'll probably ever be able to do. Um, but you know, uh, you're going complete fiction story; none of it has any basis, none of it is connected to you in any sort of way or anything like that. <laughs> well, so right, like fiction
0: is. I I think most good fiction, like really good fiction, authentic stuff, like it starts with what's real. It starts with real things and real people. And then the the thing that's fun about it is you get to use your imagination, right? Like, so your baseline, your dough is real things. And then you use your imagination. You can kind of like in my mind, get to much like deeper truths and like much deeper, like wisdom and observational power than you can necessarily with like nonfiction where you're kind of bound to like reality. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, yeah, I, um, you know, my, my novel was obviously it was, you know, it was primarily based on that first tour in Afghanistan, which was for me, was the was the hardest thing I ever did. There was nothing, nothing will ever be as hard Um, that, that was, you know, truly this, this sort of formative experience for me. And so that, that was the basis for, for my, for my novel.
1: Um, when you want to sit down and write the memoir, well, before I get to the memoirs, how quickly did you know the, the novel was going to be a success? Um, I, uh,
0: we, we, so when you're a debut author, everybody thinks that they're going to like be a bestseller, like you're going to be the next like Marmontes and like have freaking, you know, Matt, you're going to be, Matt, you're going to be the next Matterhorn, you know, mm-hmm. um, and it was, uh, you know, that's not usually, that's not usually the case, but I won, I won a national award, like, a, 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 you know, basically military novel of the year from, uh, from the American Library Association, but it, but it took a little while uh, for, for that to happen. And, uh, I think most authors, you know, you, you believe like your whole heart is in it. And so you believe that you're going to be the next like mega bestseller and you're going to win all the awards, but you know, in, in reality, that's, that's, that's not necessarily how it, how it works out. Uh, but I, I, um, you know, I thought, uh, I thought I had something like you know pretty special and, and unique, and I was able to step away from it too and kind of be like, "Hey, there's there's not a lot out there that that kind of has this this angle that I've taken," and so I I, I was always confident that it was gonna that it was gonna do well, but I was I was surprised when I you know got the award, obviously. So
1: that's pretty amazing. Congratulations. Yeah. Um, yeah so, right. uh, do you think if you don't get the award, you're not writing the memoirs, or is something else the sort of impetus for? Uh, deciding to put all the military stuff down on paper.
0: Yeah, I think the, I mean, the, the, the award like helped me, you know, kind of give you that, that little boost in motivation, but I think the the memoir was, was always there for me. And um, it was, uh, it was something I, I, you know, I wanted to do. I felt like I had some pretty wild like stories and I had, you know, like an experience, an experience that like, I thought other people too could kind of relate to. And I really believe Mark, that, you know, the best stuff that comes out of the wars is, is actually, is, is, that, is, is, written by the people who have been there, but have had some space from it. Kind of like, to my point of like writing it 10 years later, like, I think that's the best stuff. Um, you know, so, so there, you know, there's that, that motivation was there. And I felt like I was like, I'm at the right time where like, I can say things and I have observational power that, you know, maybe other, um, other, other people haven't kind of brought to to uh, to you know the storytelling
1: quite yet, so was there one story in the memoir that was tougher to write about than than others you
0: well know, i I struggled with um, some actually an event where i wasn't physically there, and I will always feel an incredible sense of like responsibility um, we had you know we had guys you know get killed it was you know frequent in my first tour but the hardest thing for me to write about was i actually went on mid-tour leave and when i was on mid-tour leave like my platoon got kind of pushed into something like into a mission that i thought was 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 flawed in many ways and i had um you know essentially two two guys killed that uh i held in very very high regard and i um you know, I I made tactical mistakes downrange. I am not perfect and I don't present myself as as perfect in any of like my storytelling, but not being, um, I I just always felt like this sense of responsibility because I wasn't, I wasn't like there. And when I wasn't there, like something happened that, you know, I felt responsible for, like if I'd have been there, that wouldn't happen to those guys. And so uh, yeah, there's that, that's sort of, um, that that thing even though like again i I didn't like see those those guys like bleed out you know Mm -hmm. with my own eyes but like that 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 was sort of hardest to like deal with um you know kind of the the memory of that was was really really tough mark
1: yeah no doubt i mean it's um uh, sometimes the the hardest things are the things that you can't control because the only thing in in combat you get any sort of uh you know sanity from is what you think you can control. When in reality we all know you really control next to nothing in combat. But our, our training and our minds allow us to believe that we do have a measure of control. Or at least we try to hold on to what we can't control for as long as we can control it. Because again, that gives us in certain cases fire superiority, it gives us cover and concealment, it gives us a whole bunch of things that's an advantage against the enemy because that's what we're trained to believe it will do. Um but again, in reality uh, we've we've told dozens of stories on this podcast. An inch to the left, an inch to the right. You know, you take one step this way versus one step that way, and look how different things could be. Um, it, there's just no telling uh, how anything is ever going to work out in combat. So, um, well, I, I I understand and empathize with the feeling um, of where you were and how you feel about it. It's uh, just a, a, a reminder that it, it is the most random thing in the entire world, and that is combat. And there's literally no control over anything because in reality you could have been there and could have done nothing to stop it as well.
0: Yeah. Or, you know, it's, it's possible you could have made it, you you know could have made it worse. worse yeah. um, and those, yeah, those tactical decisions um, will, will always be with me, you know? And I've I, like, I've tried to, you know, I've tried to like rationalize my way out of them. I've kind of like, I've tried to like kind of fit it all together and be like, okay, no, it's okay. Like, forgive, like, forgive you, forgive yourself. And, um, I haven't, I haven't gotten there, Mark, on, uh, you know, I, 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 <laughs> I, no, I, I haven't, man. I haven't. Like I've got, like you said, I've got wisdom about what happened, but there's some things that I feel like, you know, again, tactically I made the call. Somebody, somebody died or somebody got, you know, catastrophically wounded. And, uh, and you know it's it's that'll always that'll always be there with me and i you you kind of learn to you learn to cope with it but i haven't ever gotten like you know closure and even guys man there's okay so there's a guy that um he was he was horribly horribly burned um there's there's actually a few of them and some others were killed too in the same in the same firefight and uh because of some tactical calls I made that day, I, I I felt like the, the, the enemy was able to to sort of uh, initiate this horrific ambush. Um, and I, uh, you know, I, you know, it was my tactical decisions that sort of precipitated this. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, this, this guy is, um, I don't know, you know, like the, he's going to live with this forever, you know, he's going to live with it forever. and, And I don't, I don't quite know how to, how to square all that up, man. Like I can't give him back. Like what I can't give him his, his skin back. You know, I can't give him his like face back. And uh, I don't know, man. I, I don't know that he's, I don't know how he feels. Like, I don't, I don't ever felt like there was, you know, there was like that kind of that hate from him or that blame from him. Like I thought he was that I never got that from him, but like, I don't know, I I, I kind of, it it may it's self-generated.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I I, I would guesstimate that if he were sitting here right now talking to me and I had asked him, if you could switch places and and give your condition to, you know, Captain McPadden or anybody else in the platoon, would you do it? He would say no. And so uh, I, I think from that standpoint, uh, anybody who gets wounded, sure, they would love to not be wounded. But unfortunately, the intent of combat is to wound one side or the other, right? <laughs> wound to kill one side or the other. And so from that standpoint, if it wasn't him, it would have been one of his platoon mates and he wouldn't trade that for anything. That's what I gather from multiple years of, of hearing these stories and telling people, you know, having people tell their stories it's, it, and asking that question you know, are you mad? Are you angry? Are you, do you feel guilty? And usually people default to, well, if it meant one of the other guys in in my unit would have gotten it. No, I, I I would have done the same thing over again because kind of, that's what we're also trained to believe. Um, sure. There are, there are folks who, um, you know, we could talk about many of the folks we interviewed from cop Keating who would gladly tell their superiors, what the hell were you thinking putting us down in this Valley? But in the same respect, um, they understand the mission and this is what it is. And, uh, in the big picture did nobody, none of them felt like they were sent there to be killed, but not everybody survived and that's unfortunate, but it's just that, you know, I don't think any of those decisions matter in actual fighting, right? When bullets are flying, no one's concerned with who made a strategic decision or a tactical decision, or even an operational decision. When you're fighting, you're worried just about staying alive and taking care of the buddy next to you. So, uh, it, when you have time to sit back and reflect on all those things, yeah, you can second guess it to the nth degree and you can, you can analyze it and, and triple question it and quadruple question it over and over again, but you'll come up with the same answer for more often than not is that you just don't have a lot of control over this stuff sometimes. And, and, uh, as callous as it may seem, you know, if you'd like to make an omelet, eggs are going to break. And, uh, uh, unfortunately that means people are going to sustain casualties in war. It's just the way it is. Um, It's just part of how our entire ecosystem of of the military and war are. And uh, from that standpoint, I think we do a very good job. We could always do better, but we do a very good job internally of preparing each other for losses in combat. Um, You know, we don't do a very good job after the fact down the road of hashing all that crap out, right, and doing a brain dump on all that stuff, but um, understanding my part of the pie, your part of the pie. And, and, uh, what could happen to me could happen to you. We wouldn't trade it if it means we were better. Yeah. I I think that's pretty much a fair assumption for what it's worth. Just my two cents.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, no, thanks Mark. I think those are, I mean, those are great points and yeah, nobody like nobody there is there against their will. Like you don't, you know, you know, you're not, none of us were drafted in the infantry. Right. And, uh, you know i for me again it's like hey if i if I get killed that you know like this is what I wanted to do, you know, um, and you know i think uh again for, forgiveness is important, you know it is, and it forgiving is yourself. you know yeah, yeah, I just i yeah again i and and that's where I think you know sort sort of like other people that I was upset with about you know like things that happened like those that things have 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 healed up, and then I think with time too, you kind of go like, I understand the situation. I understand the tactical decisions and, and like, you know, like if, if if anything, my admiration has grown for people um, like as time has passed, but I, I still, I still struggle with that, you know, that kind of self, that sort of self-forgiveness or you, you, you tell yourself, you've convinced yourself it's all good. And then, you know, just, just something happens and it just kind of comes, comes creeping back in.
1: And and it always will, but there's a skill there that, you as an individual and anybody who suffers from that stuff needs to learn as an individual and how to cope with that and how to deal with it um, over the course of time. But I wanted to ask you in reference to the memoir, um, if you had to summarize it, what do you want people to take away from We March at Midnight?
0: Well, I think I think the big thing for me was like I actually wanted to put people like there and, and like sort of like give them an adventure story. Uh, because that's that's what this always was for me it was an adventure story and i i think the thing that kind of shines through is is uh is the like the american spirit like the the rangers and the soldiers that i fought with um it's you know some some of the finest human beings you know on on the planet and um you know their their ingenuity their courage uh, was, was always, you know, that, that was kind of the the story I wanted to tell was about just like people who endured incredibly difficult things and, and then like thrived in those situations. And Mark, what, for me, like what I think, like, I really wanted to shine a spotlight on that makes, makes things sort of different is like you, the GWAT we had a lot of men and women that volunteered. And then that like went back and forth multiple times. And for me, I think it's really easy to be brave. Like the first time you go to war, I think it's easy to be brave when you don't understand the stakes, but for the people who like kept going back, the people who got banged up, who got wounded, who saw loss and kept going back, I think it takes far more courage to keep going back. And the, like the, the, the men and women that had kids and, and families and like really understood the stakes, but kept doing it that to me was always amazing. I think I was raised on a, um, you know, I'm kind of like this, and this is like, this is very popular in in, in kind of like, you know, big media and, you know, um, the kind of the, the stories that get attention is like, there's these singular event type stories like this mission and this like medal of honor thing where this guy, you know, ran, kind of ran through the machine gun fire to grab his buddy. Right. And like, that's, you know, that, that's, that's heroic. Um, but but i think for me what's what's like true um another form of that and i think a deeper form of of heroism is the people who keep who understand the stakes who understand you know um you you can lose everything and like keep doing it so that that was kind of the story i wanted to tell it wasn't just like that you know okay here's this one like really high profile mission that people have heard about in the news but more about like the people who kind of keep going back over and over again
1: yeah, and I think, I think there was a military philosopher who said it, I forget, and Mark Bowden, who wrote Black Hawk Down, had, had echoed those same sentiments, that you can convince any man to go into battle once. It's uh, getting them to go back a second time that ultimately is the most difficult challenge that you can have. Uh, and certainly, again, you you and I both understand that, as do many other people uh, who have appeared on this podcast. Uh, but one of the things you do say uh, in we march at midnight is that you're at war with yourself. Um, can you describe that a little bit? And do you feel like you still are at war with yourself?
0: Uh, yeah. Th- I mean, to some extent, yes. I think you're like, everybody kind of has like, you get, you get demons, you know, you get demons from like what you've seen, what you've experienced. And um, you got, you know, you, you got to control, you got to control that, that those demons, man. And Um, they, you know, if you, if you, you know, they they can, they can win, you know, like they can win. There's a lot of stories out there where kind of that, that darkness wins. And so, uh, to, to me, it's about like kind of the endurance of, of fighting, but then also just kind of like, you know, mentally and psychologically, you know, winning against yourself. And, uh, you know, as I said, like, you know, forgiveness, I think is a, is a big part of that. Um, and you know, finding kind of other things, other things that, that you love and that you can put your energy into, you know, family uh, being obviously a, a very common example those sure. are, those are critical, I think, to, to kind of like use the war experience and and get better from it, right? And not have the war experience be a handicap for the rest of your life, right? If if your rite of passage breaks you, then then what are you, man? You know, so that's, that's kind of how I, you know, that's that's how I approach it. Right. Was, uh, you know, you, you, I think, um, you know, look, look for ways to to make, you know, that this has made you better um, as as opposed to kind of fixating on, you know, he, here's the things that here's the negative things that will kind of always be with me. And, you know, that that again, that can that can handicap people and it can it can quite honestly destroy people. So it's uh, it can it can be very dangerous.
1: How do you end up becoming a Pat Tillman scholar?
0: I, uh, you know, I'd always been like a good, a, a
1: really good student. Now you said you and were a so, nerd. Just call yourself a nerd.
0: I know. Yeah. So <laughs> I, was, I, I like I like school. I like reading and yeah i was like i was a nerd right like i i, I really it was like so like i played like high school football and and i did boxing i did like sports at a really high level it was, it was very don't
1: good. try and change the narrative now You're yeah but
0: but like <laughs> it's like deep down man i was a nerd like i did really well in school and like my i remember my friends were like give me shit about it and like you know it was like schoolboy, oh, hey, schoolboy, like that kind of thing and then i was like scared of girls and uh, there's a lot of like things where I, I think I didn't quite like fit the jock stereotype very well. But, um, so like, I always liked school and then I, you know, I did really well, like grade wise. And I knew, like, I knew about Pat Tillman, like who didn't know about sure. Pat Tillman, at least in kind of like our, you know, kind of our age group. Um, and so, uh, I, you know, I like applied for, for the scholar, you know, kind of that, the their, their scholarship program and, Um, you know, had really good grades, had had the military experience, you know, had been had been in combat and then, uh, you know, told them a lot about kind of like what I wanted to do, what my kind of some of my my bigger career and life goals were. And uh, that that sort of helped me help me uh, secure, you know, a a scholarship with them and be one of that uh, that sort of that that group of people. And so it was a it was a tremendous, you know, tremendous honor for me. And it's not just about School right and and like grades and academics was a big you know big community focus with that um you know the the Tillman the Tillman
1: Foundation absolutely you I mean, know, listen you're, giving, you're, you're part yeah, of giving two back. two elite groups now Army Rangers and Pat Tillman Scholars so you know, <laughs> uh, it all works out well for you
0: What's yeah and they you know that 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 like that helped put me through through grad school and that's okay. like that's what I needed that was part of like you know we talked about like you know, kind of mentally like coming out of the war, and then, you know, getting better from it, right, like building off of it, as opposed to spiraling kind of in the other direction. And, you know, the the grad school and the Tillman Foundation kind of like, because they made that like real for me, that that put me on the, you know, on a trajectory to, you know, success. And so I'm I'm, you know, incredibly indebted uh, to, to them. And, you know, I can't say enough about kind of, you know, advanced education. I think the nine eleven the post nine eleven GI builds a fantastic vehicle. And then, you know, there's a lot of groups out there, you know, Tillman foundation was, was the route I went, but there's a lot of like groups out there that kind of help and veterans, you know, like, you know, education wise, which I think, again, is incredibly important. Old infantry guys, you know, Rangers, you're like, yeah, that's that shit's badass. You get to, you know, you're cool guy stuff. Right. But like in 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 the outside world, a lot of stuff doesn't really translate all that well. Like you don't have those really like concrete, you know, like kind of tech, like a concrete technical skill that maybe a, like a nuclear tech in the Navy has um, that, that that you can sell. So I think, you know, advanced education is kind of the path to, you know, successful reinvention and like your ability to kind of have a fulfilling life. That was that's at least my story, Mark.
1: Yeah, um, I, I I agree with you on higher education. However, for me, uh, I already have a master's degree. If they send me to War College, I'll get another one, and uh, I have no use for either one of them. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, know, that's, um, no. Uh, <laughs> listen, I host the podcast, right? Like, what do I do? You know, I mean, it's, it is what it is. So, well, is it?
0: yeah, it's well. I, I mean, that was my definitely like as an undergrad. I was like. Whatever I don't know, I just want to go to war and be an officer, and yeah. I you know kind of screwing around and um but yeah like whether you know whether um you know your exact degree you know whether you end up you know truly using that is is a uh, yeah I, know, I think it's probably like fifty fifty right there's a lot of people Absolutely. who who okay. never even like touch it, you know it's more of just having a qualification um than, than actually, you know, necessarily, uh, using, using it. Wait, wait, by the way, what was your, what'd you do the the master's in?
1: Uh, I got my first one in organizational leadership. Um, Oh no, yeah. So nice. an MS and organizational leadership. And I only got it to be competitive for promotion. Like literally I've worked in radio and television my entire, like it's a business to see students. Nobody has a master's <laughs> degree. Some people don't even have a college degree, let alone, you know, uh, a master's and I'm going to end up with two of them, knock on wood. If I, if I end up going to war college and, uh, nice. you know, yeah, nice. Well, you know, I'm leadership's on the paper. one thing <laughs>
0: like, uh, I'm talking about how, you know, I'm saying like, Oh, you know, a lot of this stuff doesn't translate. And, you know, and, you know, I'm, I'm sort of oversimplifying, but right. Like the leadership piece is always like the one thing from the military that like that translates, right? Like you can, you can take that as a, as a skill set that most people yeah. never, no matter what kind of training, what kind of schooling you've done, like you, you kind of, you can never kind of quite get that the way you can get that from especially from like an army or a military at war you know like that's uh you know in absolutely priceless experience
1: uh what's next for you more books more family time what do you, what's on the what's on the horizon yeah
0: more books I, I would uh i i'd love to go back into to novels and non and non that that's a that's a cool world and uh i um you know i work in yellowstone national park i'm I'm here in the west i love the west i love the mountains uh so so i could see myself doing doing something uh you know maybe set set here in the states and in the, the west and the you know some of these these last like wild places we still have
1: well listen man it's awesome that you uh you reached out to us i think it's great that you wanted to tell your story um i think it's a, an amazing story at that and your journey and look we, we did 90 minutes and went by in the blink of an eye so i certainly appreciate you uh, stopping by and sharing it with us. Uh, can people reach out to you on social work and so they can get your books at uh, Amazon, all Barnes and Noble, every outlet store there is.
0: Yeah. Every, every, all the big outlets. Right. Um, it's, it's, it's available. Um, I'm, I'm at Ray
1: on the web and then Ray McPadden one on uh, Instagram. All right. Well, again, we March at midnight is the memoir uh, and the book itself, the, the, the fiction novel and the whole, mountain burned. Um, again, winner of the W.Y. Boyd literary award for excellence in military fiction. Ray, again, thank you so much for your time, brother. It's great to hear from you. Uh, continue to consume the podcast. We're glad you're a fan, but we had a blast telling your story and we certainly appreciate you being part of the hazard ground.
0: Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me on my pleasure. All right. Take care. You've been listening to kill cliffs hazard ground podcast hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell, and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.